Welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. My name is Joe Anity. I serve as pastor of Emmaus Christian Fellowship Church in Hemet, California, and I'm joined today by Mark Hogan. Mark, thanks for joining me again. It's a pleasure to be here again. Uh, this is actually the second episode in a three-part series that Mark and I are putting together entitled From Pedo to Credo. Um, the title's my fault. I'll take ownership of it if it's uh, tacky, <laughs> but uh, it, I think it is kind of descriptive of what we're trying to get out here. Mark um, uh, has uh, experienced a conversion of sorts, and I uh, I, I use that term conversion uh, in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way, but uh, conversion from pedo-baptist convictions to credo-baptist convictions. Uh, for the listener who uh, is just tuning in, a pedo-baptist is one who believes in baptizing infants. A credo-baptist is one who believes that baptism should only be administered to those who profess faith in Christ. Uh, and so we're devoting three episodes to this topic um, comparing the Pato position to the Credo position, uh, and we're doing it in this way. In the first episode, if you haven't listened to it, you should go back and listen to it. Uh, Mark gave his uh, testimony and the story of uh, the progression from the one view to the other, uh, and then we, I think, worked really hard to fairly represent and present the Pato baptist position. Uh, I, I think we pulled that off, Mark, don't you? I hope so, and uh, I think we hit the major points of all uh, infant Baptist argumentation. I'm, sur- I'm sure there are some Pado Baptists, if they were to listen to this, who would say, "But you forgot this, and you forgot that." And mm-hmm. it, uh, if we did, it, it wasn't deliberate. It's just uh, true due to time limitations, I, I think. Um, but we worked hard at it to fairly present the Pado position. In the second episode, we're going to begin to critique that Pado position. And then the plan is this, to, in the third episode, give a presentation, a positive presentation of the credo uh, position. And uh, so mm-hmm. we're trying to stay disciplined to only do one thing per episode here. We'll see how we do. It'll um, mix a little bit, I think. <laughs> sure, of course it will. Um, but that's the objective of this episode, is to offer a critique of the Pato position that we presented uh, last time. Uh, so I think it would be best, Mark, to begin by just giving a brief overview of the Pado position. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you mind doing that for us? Absolutely. Yeah. So the the big points that we covered last time, uh, first, the Abrahamic and the New Covenant from a Pado baptist perspective are the same in substance. Um, so uh, at their core, uh, they are the exact same covenant. Abraham and the New Covenant offer the same grace in the Messiah – um, I think you said this last time. It's it's like um, having a, a sort of an old car versus the new car, uh, but it's but having the, the the sort of the same engine in it. Or maybe you mentioned that in a previous uh, in a previous podcast. But that's that's basically the point there that the Abrahamic and the New Covenant are in substance the exact same covenant. Um, and from there, we said that there because Abraham is taken as the paradigm of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, um, really a, a biological and sort of hereditary right 
is introduced into the sphere of the covenant of grace based on Genesis 17, 7, uh, to you and, and, and to your seed, uh, which is also uh, emphasized by Peter in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, where he says the promises to you and to your children. So uh, it is the first birth that brings someone into the, the sphere of the covenant of grace. Uh, third, we said that baptism uh, replaces circumcision in the paedobaptist mindset. And I don't think that's too strong of language, perhaps for some infant Baptists, but for most, they use the language of replacement when it comes to baptism uh, and circumcision, taking Colossians 2, 11 through uh, 12 as uh, their sort of paradigm verse there. And then uh, we talked about the the family as as a covenantal institution that defines a membership. You know, uh, Abraham is a believer, and he gives his children the the sign of circumcision. So it's believers and their and their children. And uh, we saw that Paul uh, in Ephesians six and Colossians three uh, gives commands to. Apparently, the the children of believers, um, and so he's including them in sort of the membership of the covenant community. Uh, fifth, we talked about the internal external relationship to the covenant of grace. That um, that that there is a basically, from my understanding, is a spiritual core of elect people known only to God. But that's not coextensive with the with the community. Of, of the church, and the children have always been included in that sort of external administration of the covenant of grace from the time of Abraham onward. So you have an internal-external distinction. And then finally, uh, we talked about, um, this was very brief, I think, in the last podcast, we talked about uh, of the view of children that Jesus had in the New Testament, let the little children come unto me, do not hinder them. You know, from a Pato Baptist perspective, that is exactly what the Baptist is doing. They're hindering the children from coming to Jesus. Mm. And uh, then we we um, we talked very briefly about 1 Corinthians 7.14, where Paul says that the children of believers are, are holy and that that's covenantal language. And so if they're holy, um, you know, this is where we get the, the language of holy in Christ and therefore ought to receive the, the sign of of baptism. So those are the those are the six big points and that was really fast. So right, yeah. if it, so you know if you haven't listened to the the previous podcast I encourage you to go do that. Great. I think that was a very good summary. Uh, Mark what caused you to start to question the pedo position? I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. You grew up mm-hmm. in this in this world in this system uh, you know surrounded by people that you uh, love still of course and uh, yes. respect tremendously um, and, and so to begin to question something that you've been taught from the time that you were young um, is not uh, is not totally natural you know uh, there, there had yeah. to be something that sparked it what was it that sparked it Yes, uh, and I, I hinted at this, or I mentioned it briefly in the last podcast. That uh, I'm sitting in a in a preaching class where we're talking about times where we would be preaching apart from the the normal Sunday morning service, going through a you know an expositional series of a book of the Bible, and we were talking about infant baptism sermons, and uh, I remember. One of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church students saying, we do not want to treat our children like second-class citizens in the church. Uh, we want to really bring them in and and think of them um, not as lesser, but as 
it's it seemed on on an equal par as as those who are who are believers in in professors um and so it was it basically it it was that question and there was several people who agreed with that statement in in, in the class um and i thought even from my pedo baptist perspective that sounds really odd how did i fit as a child in in that context of being a a non-communicant member, not able to partake of the supper until I professed faith. Uh, And once I professed faith, then I became a communicant member and was welcomed to the privileges of full communion, as the pastor said when I made profession. So it really caused some cognitive dissonance in my mind uh, about the communicant, non-communicant membership distinction. And from there, I asked... uh, some Reformed Baptists, what I should read from their perspective. And they told me Nehemiah Cox. I read Nehemiah Cox on the Abrahamic Covenant and uh, unseated me enough that I wanted to study the issue farther. And that threw me into a really long study, reading hundreds and hundreds of pages from really both sides of the uh, of, of the aisle and ultimately coming out on uh, the Credo Baptist side. Well, I appreciate that. So it, it, that was mm-hmm. a spark. Um, it was yeah. a spark, yeah. yeah. It's and I think that has been the spark uh, in for for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. You know, some people go uh, pedo communion because of that spark. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I and 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 I think some people go in the opposite direction. Men like Fred Malone um, would go in the opposite direction uh, based upon this communicant non communicant membership distinction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think it would be good for us to begin to address each of these main uh, points that you have summarized mm-hmm. for us that we tried to present fairly in the previous podcast and begin to just simply que- question them. Um, and in my mind, this first point uh, is really the biggest one. It's it's the point upon which everything else seems to kind of hang. Um, mm-hmm. The Pado-Baptist, uh, the whole system is really based upon this idea that the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are – the same in substance, mm-hmm. and I think we just need to ask the question, is that true? Uh, can the Abrahamic right. covenant be considered the covenant of grace, uh, just as the new covenant is the covenant of grace, but just a different es- administration of it? So, what do you say? Yeah, so it's it's such a big issue that it's hard to know exactly where to sort of pierce the bubble. (laughs) But I I think um, to begin with, what I would say is oftentimes when when you're hearing Paedo-Baptist talk, the Abrahamic covenant is really chalked up to believers and and their children, believers and their seed. Whereas what what I think we need to see is that the Abrahamic covenant is, is not believers and their seed, uh, but but Abraham and his seed, and we have to view Abraham and his seed viewed in two very very distinct ways, and and to mix and confound Abraham's seed viewed in in this dual aspect is is to do damage to many uh, doctrines I think that we hold dear now. Um, so view, viewing Abraham as something of a dichotomous covenant that is in a twofold way. Uh, I see that in, in Galatians 4, where it says that Abraham had two sons. Mm-hmm. 
right? So we're not talking about Moses here, although we're talking about the fulfillment, I guess, in, in one way of the Abrahamic covenant that, that Moses sort of flows organically out of Abraham um, in terms of the, the biological seed. Um, but it says Abraham had two sons, and in this passage, Paul uh, allegorically, it says we can, we can interpret this allegorically as a seed that is according to the flesh, which Paul interprets as physical uh, national Israel. And uh, secondly, uh, he interprets Abraham's uh, – another seed of Abraham that is according to promise. And he applies that from, from Isaac to – uh, to those who are born according to the Spirit, very clearly in that passage. And so from, from Galatians 4, I think we have to see that Abraham is, first, he's the father and root of the Israelite nation. And I, I'm, I'm getting this from Nehemiah Cox, and I want to read a quote from him in just a second. But uh, Abraham is the root and the father of the Israelite nation. Genesis 17, 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And we know that that word everlasting there doesn't mean um, eternity or, or anything like that. The word olam has to be, in, in Hebrew, has to be clarified. But uh, throughout the Old Testament, you also see the emphasis upon the land of Canaan being this promise that God has given to Israel through their forefather, Ab- for the, through, through their forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so you can look up Exodus thirty-two, thirteen, uh, Psalm one hundred and five, nine through eleven, First uh, Chronicles sixteen, sixteen through seventeen, and Nehemiah eight, na- uh, nine, verse eight, to see how Abraham has to be considered the father and the root of the Israelite nation, and then secondly, uh, he has to be considered the the father of all true believers, which is exactly what Romans 4, 11 says. It says that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. And then it goes on there in that verse to say, and the father of the circumcision who are not merely circumcised in the flesh, but who also share the same faith as Abraham had. Um, so you have Abraham in, in seeing Abraham in this dual way. That's important. Right. So to to look at the covenant made with Abraham and to say it is simply the covenant of grace is too simplistic. It's not exactly. Um, it, it's not recognizing the complexity of all that was transacted with Abraham mm-hmm. and the covenant that God made with him. Yeah, and you know some of the language even of the Abrahamic covenant: uh, "Walk before me and be perfect." Um, the express injunction, Nehemiah Cox will say, of the commandment to circumcise. And if you do not circumcise, you have broken the covenant. Um, I have commanded him that he will teach uh, his children. Um, I'm forgetting the exact terminology of that verse. But you have things in the Abrahamic covenant that seem to promote this idea that Abraham's obedience is actually quite important to the reception of the promises. And even paedo-baptists like Meredith Klein would acknowledge that and say, you know, this obedience of Abraham is kind of showing forth uh, Christ's act of righteousness that's going to come in the New Testament. But you see this emphasis upon works uh, in the Abrahamic covenant, but you also see that God is the one who's passing through the pieces and he's taking upon the covenantal 
uh, curses that he will be true to the promises that he keeps. And so you have condition and you have uh, uncondition <laughs> at the same time. Um, and it's very, very important to see that. And I think that you also see condition uh, conditions and unconditional promises in the Davidic covenant too. So, for example, in Jeffrey Johnson's book, he sort of uses the Davidic covenant to uh, illuminate and enlighten how we ought to view uh, Abraham as well. Yeah, I think that's helpful. So there is a works principle in the Abrahamic covenant, but also mm-hmm. there is a promise of grace there that the New Testament oftentimes picks up upon and uh, exactly. really likes and really highlights. But the, the Galatians 4 passage that you mentioned earlier is very significant because it's there that Paul expressly says that there are two covenants in, in Abraham, mm-hmm. and uh, we need to yeah. pay attention to that. Yeah, there is certainly uh, and obviously an organic connection between uh, Abraham and Moses. And if we miss that, it's very dangerous. Sure. And there's also a connection between Abraham and Christ, and we need mm, to amen. pay attention to that as well. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would just say that paedo-baptists have a tendency to confound this. Um, you know, everything about their theology stems from understanding Abraham as a believer and then seeing his children as those who are given the covenantal sign, mm-hmm. right, on the basis of him being a believer. Now, um, those are both true statements. Abraham was a believer, and he did give, not all of his children, of course, but his male sons, the sign of circumcision. Uh, but then to go on from that and declare, therefore, the covenant graces with believers and their children is is something that actually I think does not follow. Um, the fact that Abraham believed God and then gave the sign to his kids does not mean that the covenant of grace was with believers and their children. I think that's actually an assumption that the Paedo-Baptist is making that is not proven and has to be tested against Scripture, even in light of, um, you know, the, the I will be your God, you will be my people. That that statement, they say, shows the continuity of the covenant of grace over the two testaments. I, um, I will be your God, you will be my people. But that can't even be interpreted monolithically. Uh, um, that has to be interpreted in a dual way as well. Um, you know, God says to to uh, in 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 Hosea, um, uh, He says, uh, you know, call your son Loami, lo not my people. And John the Baptist says in in Luke three nine that the axe is laid to the root of the, of the tree, and the Isra- Israelites uh, as a whole, apart from the remnant according to grace, are going to be cut off. And so you even have this dual idea with the covenantal formula that there is a covenantal formula extending to um, a, a true Abrahamic seed or believers. And you also have the, that covenantal formula extending in redemptive history to national Israel. Right. And so when we come to the pages of the New Testament, we see consistently this emphasis that the t- true children of Abraham are who? It is, right. It is those who have faith. Uh, yes. The, the faith of Abraham, and it has yes. not to do with uh, genealogy. I'm getting ahead of my, ourselves a little bit here, uh, of myself a little bit here, and maybe pushing us too far down the road. But <laughs> yeah, it's, that's important, no problem. it's important to notice that, that this is the way that the New Testament speaks of, of Abraham and our being connected to him. It's mm. those who have faith. Amen. In, in him. Yeah. 
And, and if the New Testament is going to be the fullest expression of how we are to interpret the old, it seems that we would place a lot of importance and emphasis on the way that the New Testament explains the Abrahamic seed and who they are. And we'll, we'll, like you said, we'll get to this a little bit later, but um, it gets a little bit complicated, much more than just believers and their, and, and their children. Sure. Uh, so. Okay, so the Paedo-Baptist position is this. The Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace, a different administration, uh, but it is the covenant of grace, just as the new covenant is the covenant of grace. Abraham circumcised his descendants, therefore we are to give baptism to our descendants, the children mm-hmm. of believers. And what we are saying here is that you cannot really equate the two. In fact, mm-hmm. there is so much evidence, both in the Old Testament and the New, that we cannot say the Abrahamic covenant is or equals the covenant of grace, that it is mm-hmm. the same in substance. Uh, there's a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that it is not exactly the same thing, but it's more complex. Uh, the mm-hmm. Abrahamic covenant, this is how I like to put it to try to make it simple, is not the covenant of grace, but it is the Abrahamic covenant that has two, yeah. two, two <laughs> I don't know why I like to put it like that. It is the covenant of, it is the Abrahamic covenant. It has its own unique uh, quality. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I like I like how you put that too. Has a similar ring to it's not believers and their seed. It's you know it's Abraham and and his seed. Sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, and, and uh, to get back to a previous point I was making, Nehemiah Cox mentions this in Covenant Theology from Adam to Christ, which I'll talk about at the end, um, where he talks about Abraham's dual role as father of all true believers and the father and root of the Israelite nation. And here's what he says. Mm-hmm. The blessings appropriate to either, to either of either the father of true believers or the father and root of the Israelite nation, uh, the blessings appropriate to either must be conveyed in a way agreeable to their peculiar and respective covenant interest, and these things may not be confounded, that is mixed up, without a manifest hazard to the most important articles of the Christian religion. The mutual reference of all God's covenant transactions with Abraham and God's dispensation toward the church for some ages following was such that it required a present intermixture of the promises and an involving of spiritual blessings in the shade of temporal and of a spiritual seed in a natural seed. And so really the beautiful thing that we see here with Abraham is we see how the intermixture of the promises in this paradigm figure which he is uh the the promises of to to believers and then the promises to Israelites do sweetly correspond to one another in the plan of God. Um the physical promises what what did they do? They hedged off the people from mm-hmm. whom the Messiah was going to come, and uh, as the New Testament highlights, Christ was born um, of Abraham in Matthew one, right, mm-hmm. and then of David according to the flesh, Romans one. Um, and so, but once these physical promises were borne out, including the gaining of the land of Canaan, right, the spiritual Israel, uh, no longer according to the flesh, um, comes to the fore. In the Bible, right? Those who are spiritual children of Abraham, not by physical right, but by Christ alone. And so uh, Leslie Newbegin has this uh, awesome little statement. He says here, a new hour has struck in Christ. Out of the womb of the old Israel, the new Israel, Israel after the spirit is born. Not that it is wholly new. It is, as St. Paul says, witnessed to by the law and the prophets. 
What is now revealed, he says, is a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ unto all them that believe without distinction. And in this new dispensation, all glorying, he says, is excluded. There is now no possibility for anyone to claim that he belongs to God's people by right. Hmm. No man has rights before God. Righteousness is by faith, by complete dependence on the gracious promises of God. There is no other. Now, nope. So no, no one has a right before God. But remember, last week we mentioned that the Directory of Public Worship says that children, by their birth, have a right to the sign and seal of the covenant. Uh, but as Leslie Newbegin just said, according to the New Testament, no one can claim that they are God's people by right. Um, I think that's a very important point. Yeah. Right. So <clears throat> Jacob is born to Isaac, and he receives circumcision because by by virtue of his birth, he was born into the covenant community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also um, Ishmael is born – and he, by virtue of his birth, is given the sign of the covenant because he is born into the covenant community. Mm-hmm. Um, but that and go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and and I also see that through his, uh, through Abraham's, uh, well, we can say me, me, mediating on Ishmael's behalf. God says, "I've listened to you, and I'm going to bless him." And he makes him, mm-hmm. you know, he makes twelve kings come from him, sort of analogous to the twelve tribes of Israel. So I think he was also blessed through this uh, through this Abrahamic covenant in a typological way. Sure, but that dynamic just kind of disappears when we come mm-hmm. to um, the new covenant inaugurated in Christ's blood. That's a question I've asked of of a. Uh, Pado Baptist before, and it, it just makes mm-hmm. sense to my mind. Um, uh, it, there's seen, circumcision; it, it has to do with um, physical descent, mm-hmm. um, and it seems to be looking forward to the coming of this seed, the, the coming of this promised one. But he has come. Yep. You know, who who are we waiting for now? You know, who yeah. do we expect to come from our loins now? Mm-hmm. Uh, now that we live two thousand years after the um, inauguration of the, the new covenant. Who are we yep. waiting Amen. for? Um, and, and, and of course, our perspective would be we're not waiting for anyone because he has come. We look back to him. Therefore, the whole uh, sense of expectation concerning a descendant uh, Amen. Is, is no more. And, uh, and, and that, that uh, biological stuff leading up to Jesus Christ, um, that I mean that characterizes in many ways Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's different now, like you just said. Um, that's the whole point of the of the new covenant of Gentiles, you know, streaming into the covenants of promise that have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ when He uh, says, "This is the new covenant made in My blood," and He dies for the elect. Um, and uh, and that is. Something that is different in terms of ethnic boundary markers. Uh, no, now it's all tribes, nations, languages, and tongues. You know, the door of salvation has been thrown open wide to the nations. There's no longer this this ethnic uh, or biological, we might want to say, idea. Mm-hmm. Well, that that is a question we need to specifically address. Are we ready to go there, brother? Uh, to uh, ask- yeah, I. Th- 
to ask the question, is there a biological or hereditary right to the new covenant? We've already kind of bled over into that. I realize it. Um, but I think we should address it in a most direct way. Do we see evidence of a biological or hereditary right, uh, in, uh, the covenant of grace, uh, specifically Mm -hmm. looking, of course, from our perspective at the new, the new covenant? (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Recovering from a little bit of a cold here. So Mm -hmm. yeah, just keep me hustling along here and I'll, I'll, uh, (laughs) I'll make sure to, to, to keep running along. I, I have a lot of stuff that I could say, but okay. So, um, as we've just said, from the directory of public worship, uh, let me just quote again, the promise is made to believers in their seed and that the seed and posterity of the faithful born within the church have by their birth interest in the covenant and right to the seal of it and to the outward privileges of the church. All right. And then we also noted that infant baptism form number three of the United Reformed Church says that parents are to teach their children that they have been set apart uh, by baptism as God's own children. And in another form, parents are asked if they believe that their children are made holy by God in Christ. And so as members of his body ought to be baptized. These are the things that I was struggling with as as I first came into contact with Nehemiah Cox and, and, the, and the Reformed Baptist way of thinking was, does my son have a biological right to the sign based upon, you know, being my own seed. And all paedo-baptists are in agreement that there is uh, this you and your seed principle, and therefore there is a biological and hereditary right pulled into the covenant of grace. Okay, so we've we've established that. I have some quotes here from uh, several reformed people, but I won't give those. I think I've already you know, shown that that's the case. Um, but anyway, all of that is just to say that the first birth is what brings a child of a believer into the covenant uh, community. How do we start um, undermining this from a Reformed Baptist perspective? Well, if you're a Pado baptist listening to this, let me just explain that from where I came from. Okay. So I, I, I had, as a Pado Baptist, I had my conceptions and reasons and passages and covenant theology, right. That all worked together toward a theological understanding of infant uh, baptism, right? My children are heirs of the promises. They are covenant children. They have covenant blessings and all of those sounded and, and <laughs> to many people sound like wonderful things. And with the right preconceptions, you can find passages in the scriptures that seem to confirm those things. But I'm going to go through a few passages here that we'll talk about. And what I would never do is apply these particular texts that I'm about to mention to the subject of infant baptism. They really had no uh, they really did not impinge at all upon uh, upon my paedo baptism. In, in the past, um, you, you you would not you would not think of these texts and apply them to the topic of uh, no baptism. no okay. be, because you you have that construction right you have the Abrahamic covenant and you have Acts two thirty nine and you have First Corinthians seven fourteen and I, you know I just a lot of other texts just do not come uh, to hand when you're thinking about infant baptism. So. Um. Here are the texts, basically. Don uh, chapter 1, 12 to 13 uh, says this. To those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
who were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, in other words, you have to receive Jesus, you have to believe in Jesus, and you have to be born again, right? You can't be born of, uh, of God. Uh, uh, I mean, you have to be born of God uh, by being born of the Spirit. Now, taking this, these two verses um, and applying them to what I've just said, the infant baptism form saying, I am to teach my child that he has been set apart by baptism as God's own child. But now John 1 was saying he gives the right to become children of God to those who are born not of the will of the flesh. Uh, and as the, the director of public worship said, they have a right to this. Well, it says he gave the right to become children of God to those who are born not of the will of the flesh. And so it's, it says they were born not of man, but of God. And therefore, according to the gospel of John, uh, in my mind, this was a very clear text showing that there is no hereditary right to the, uh, to the gospel of Jesus. Um, it is not the first birth that brings one into a gracious relationship with God. Uh, but it is the spiritual rebirth based upon the election according to grace that is what brings you into this relationship of being able to be called a, a child, to be adopted by God, is to to be worked in by the Holy Spirit. So let me interrupt you and ask mm-hmm. this question. How would a thoughtful paedo-baptist respond to everything that you've just said? Do you know? Have you heard a response to this, or, or can you anticipate it? Um. You know, I, I I cannot recall ever listening to uh, or having a conversation with a Pado Baptist about this particular text and hearing their response. So, uh, like I said, I never applied this text to um, to the, the the subject at hand, and unfortunately, many a time this text doesn't even come into play. It seems like in in uh, conversations with people. I will say it does seem like when you read reformed pedo baptists they acknowledge this principle very very strongly that are and they will affirm and say our children uh of course um the 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 uh, uh the inward covenant right so not the external but the the internal covenant mm-hmm. only happens based upon the election of grace. Sure. Um, so, so th- I think they would appeal back to that distinction and say, well, externally though, there, there is grace here. Um, but it's not, it's not, um, necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily saving grace. And so the children can't trust in the fact that they were born from a believer. Um, I, I think that's probably how they would respond. Yeah. They would have to fall back on their internal, external distinction, and I guess they would have to say that what John 1, 12 through 13 is referring to is what it takes to be internally uh, a part of the covenant mm. and to belong mm-hmm. to God inwardly and truly and savingly. Uh, but the language just seems so clear here. It, 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 mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with your critique of the, the system using John 1, 12 through 13. It seems to um, – very much contradict what John is clearly saying. Yeah. I hope it's okay that I interrupted you and pressed you on that point a little bit. I just thought no, it'd be no, good I, to raise the uh, potential um, response. I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, in my mind, the biggest thing for me, having gone back to the infant baptism forms that I grew up 
listening to, excuse me, um, and hearing that I am to teach my child that he has been set apart by baptism as God's own child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to read say, he gave the right <laughs> to become children of God who are born not of the will of the flesh. Well, right. my son, I, we, my, my, you know, we wanted a, we wanted a child and here my wife is, is pregnant and I'm thinking, whoa, I can't do that. I can't teach my child that based upon baptism, he's God's own child because I have to, uh, call him to faith before he does that, and he has to, um, you know, espouse the uh, uh, fruits of regeneration and and uh, make a profession of faith and and all, all, all of all of those things. It, it was it was that big disjunction in my mind that was the biggest thing. Yeah, I think it's powerful, and I would hope just mm-hmm. that this passage right here would at least cause cause folks to pause and think. Mm-hmm. And to ask, maybe there's something um, inconsistent with the system that I've adopted. Yeah, um, that yeah. is creating the tension uh, with this passage of scripture. What are, what are some other passages? You, you had a few that you wanted to mention. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. uh, Galatians three twenty five through twenty nine mm-hmm. says, um, "But now that faith has come, and I think that now is really, you know, that's a real punchy uh, last end times now." Uh, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, applying that, you know, backwards to John 1, mm-hmm. uh, 12 through 13, sort of illuminating of that. But anyway, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And notice what he says here. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to the promise. So the promise, uh, according, yeah. yep, exactly. So according to Paul, to be considered a child of God, you have to belong to Christ through faith. And there is no, no sense in which you might belong to Abraham, mm-hmm. but through Jesus Christ. But again, the passage is stressing that, that faith is the instrument that connects us to Jesus. Now, what Pedro Baptist is going to disagree that, you know, faith is the instrument that connects us to Jesus. But uh, Paul's all-encompassing statement, as many of you as were baptized, I mean, that is an all-encompassing statement there, saying that everyone that was baptized has put on Jesus Christ. So according to Pedro Baptist, then, would they say that the infant who receives baptism has put on Jesus Christ. I don't know how they would mediate that language. Maybe they would say externally again, mm-hmm. rather than internally. But how can that be according to the sense of the passage, especially as Paul goes on to to say that if you want to be considered a true child of Abraham, you must belong to Christ. But once again, that means that you have to have faith in him. And so the children are, of God are not the physical children, but those who are led by the Spirit of God, Romans 8, 14. Um, should I just keep going here? I think so. I had some thoughts rattling around in my head, but, um, okay. I've decided not to, uh, vocalize them right now. Yeah. So, uh, why don't you go ahead, brother? <laughs> yep. It's, it's hard. It's hard to, uh, to boil this all down. We're only on the second point here, but okay. I'll keep going here. Uh, Romans eight, nine, anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. Um, I, that verse, I think, stands on its own uh, in yeah. terms of uh, an external, internal uh, distinction. 
Um, does my child have the spirit of God? You know, th- this is where the early reformers were a little unclear and were willing to affirm things that people today would not be willing to affirm, mm-hmm. talking about the seed of faith, talking about um, they're just as much a partaker of the promises, you know, as as uh, believers. Um, I mean, you can read Gerhardus Voss, I think, in in, in his article in uh, on the Pactum Salutis, and he says this that the early reformers were willing to say things that, well, maybe I'm interpreting this now. <laughs> they said things that people today would be very uncomfortable saying. But just listen to the verse: anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Him. Uh, that seems to cut the tie with any sort of even external uh, connection that one could have with Jesus Christ covenantally. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, uh, they have to maintain this external principle, this idea that you can kind of belong to Christ halfway, uh, you, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I, and I remember you know, asking a Pedro Baptist friend, who, who is your child in? Mm-hmm. Is, is your child at birth in Adam or in Christ? You know, it seems to be that, to me that the New Testament is clear. It's one or the other. Mm. Um, yeah, but, can, can you have two covenant mediators, Joe? Not in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that that question um, – one of my friends – Dabney is actually the one. Dabney Olgan is actually the one who brought this up to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how can you have Adam – being the federal head of the covenant of works and Christ being the head of the covenant of grace and the child is a child of wrath who is born of the flesh come into this world and has Christ as their mediator in some external sense well is i mean is that possible to have Christ as a mediator in an external sense yeah i can't comprehend it and i see no evidence for it in the pages of the new testament yeah, and I think this verse does a good job of showing the necessity of having the Spirit if you're going to belong yeah, to Christ. I agree. Um, my child is to be counted as God's child because he has been set apart um, by God through baptism as God's own child. Um, Romans 8, 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. It's like uh, that's what I had to tell my elders. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I can't teach my child that he's a child of God. Um, based upon him being set apart by baptism. Um, okay. So, I mean, maybe we can skip this next one. A lot has been written about it anyway. Romans 9, 8 is not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise. And by the way, just children of the promise in the New Testament is mm-hmm. always the election according to grace, those who are spiritual children of Abraham. Um, it is It is not, you know, Pano Baptists write books, like Randy Booth, Children of Promise, where he's talking about uh, the physical progeny of believers. Uh, according to the New Testament, Children of Promise are those who are Abraham's seed by faith uh, in Christ. And uh, and I would also say heirship, the idea of that, you know, Pedro Baptist would say our children are heirs of the promises. Um, well, if you look up the relevant texts in the New Testament where heir is used, it really is a stretch to say that that could be in any sort of external way. I mean, it really does seem like we are heirs through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, we we have uh, we are heirs of the inheritance that is imperishable, unspoiled, unfading, 
uh, and is kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being, you know, kept. Uh, mm-hmm. So it seems that when whenever airship is talked about, it's talking about election as well. Yeah. Well, brother, I think it's my job to keep us going and then also to try to make things simple. There's so much here. Mm-hmm. And I do appreciate uh, the thoroughness, um, and I think some will. Um, but two things, two points have been made so far. The, the Pado baptist position is that the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. It's a diff- different administration of the same covenant of grace. Uh, the new covenant is also the covenant of grace, but a different administration from the Abrahamic. We say that doesn't quite work. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant seems to have within it both a works principle that flows naturally into the Mosaic covenant, and also there is promise there um, that that flows quite naturally into the, uh, the the through the Davidic into the New. Did I state that okay? Mm-hmm. And so we question the premise um, fr- from the outset. Uh, we don't mm-hmm. think we can equate the two things, though there is certainly continuity between the Abrahamic and the new. And, yes. and then also in regard to – and just correct me if I state something uh, sloppily. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, we question the idea that there is a hereditary principle that remains under the new covenant. Everything seems mm-hmm. to be about doing away with that. Uh, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, right, mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in this new covenant. Um, it, what matters is faith. It's all about faith. It's all about being born again, having the Spirit of God. It is they yes. who are in the new covenant. And, and so we, we question um, we question that premise and challenge that premise yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, what was, was Abraham or uh, Isaac or Jacob saved upon the basis of the Abrahamic, or were they saved upon the basis of the new covenant? Um, I think that's a clarifying question too. Mm-hmm. And I think we would say – they were saved because, uh, as I've heard recently, the shadow of the cross um, reaches out across the pages of the Old Testament in whom the Old Testament saints hoped in the promise that was given uh, through the covenant um, given to Abraham. There was a promise, uh, but that the salvation of Abraham actually stems not from the Abrahamic, but from um, the the new covenant itself made in Jesus' blood. There's, and, one, there's uh, one mediator between God and man. Mm-hmm. Amen. That was true of Old Testament saints as it is uh, of, of new that we must come to God through faith in Christ. Prior to the coming of Christ, Christ was accessed by way of the promises made uh, mm-hmm. as men and women looked forward to him. Uh, and now that Christ has come, uh, we look back to him and to the work that he accomplished on the cross on our yeah. behalf. So it's the cross, the cross of yep. Christ that saves. Yeah, um, uh Exactly. And uh, another thing, too, is uh, is the Abrahamic covenant the covenant of new creation? Hmm. Um, no, it's not. I mean, it really dealt with uh, typological of the, the new covenant, yes. but it dealt with a, a physical land, a physical people, a, uh, a kingship. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, and it's not the, the covenant of new creation. The, the new covenant made in Christ's blood is really that covenant of new creation. Um, and that's been acknowledged by, by Pado Baptists as well. So, yeah, I think all these points are really good. So here's another thing we need to address. Does baptism replace circumcision? The argument Mm -hmm. flows like this. The Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. Uh, the difference is, uh, one of the differences is, 
in Abraham and in Moses, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. And in the new covenant, the sign of and seal, they, they would say, of the covenant is baptism, right? And mm-hmm. the one replaces the other and even kind of equals the other. We, we need to respond yeah. to that, don't we? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, once again, as we did last time, we have to say this: this sounds plausible, um, and uh, it's it works. You know, for a lot of people, they they're like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense to me." Um, let's test it, um, because I think when we begin to look, not from just a continuity perspective, but we look at at what is the discontinuity and the continuity of the two signs, uh, we, we begin to see that there are, really is a lot of discontinuity between them both. Um, now, it, it is interesting that, that in order to stress the continuity of the covenantal signs performed in, in paedo-baptist theologians, they, they have to acknowledge, but they wave it away very quickly, a very important aspect of the discontinuity, which is that circumcision is a national sign for the people of Israel and something that also places a burden upon the people of, of, of Israel. And the fact that it's a national sign, I mean, I think is proven just by the fact that that second generation who was going to enter into the land of Canaan were all circumcised before, I mean, all the males were circumcised before they entered the land. Um, that was a necessity that had to take place nationally for them to inherit the Abrahamic promise of the land, the, the physical land of, of Canaan. And, and so uh, when, when we look at the issue, just, just as, as we see uh, something of a threefold distinction in, in the, uh, the people of, of Abraham being physical uh, believers and Christ, I think we can also see a threefold distinction in terms of um, – in terms of circumcision, mm-hmm. there's a spiritual aspect very clearly in, from the Old Testament and, and the New. Uh, there is a messianic aspect and there is also a physical aspect um, to the sign of circumcision. So Abraham and his spiritual seed who, uh, who come to be circumcised in their heart by the regeneration of the flesh um, – is obviously pointed to um, as, as a whole people in Jeremiah 31 and the giving of the new heart. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Paul can say, we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, Philippians 3.3. 3. So, so to restate it, um, when we think of circumcision, we do acknowledge that there was a spiritual component to it. There was something mm. spiritual being symbolized by it. In fact, th- there was a sense in which the circumcision was calling all to be circumcised, not externally only and according to the flesh, but according to the heart in Old Covenant Israel. Does, it, Absolutely. Does that get out of it? Okay, so there's a spiritual yeah. component to it. Yeah. And, I, and I think Baptists and Paedo-Baptists need to be very fair with each other uh, in in – Realizing that, because from the Baptist perspective, we want to say, oh, it had primary national significance, right? Well, I don't know if I would say that primarily it had national significance. I think it had many significances. Right. Same thing with, from a Pado Baptist side. They say, well, it, it may have had a national, you know, thing, uh, but really the heart of it was the spiritual. Well. I'm not sure that the primary was the spirit. It, it, there was many, you know, I want to say again, mm-hmm. there was many things. Complex. That it's complex. It's, Just it's, like it's, the Abrahamic exactly. covenant. It's complex. 
Exactly. There, there is a complexity with circumcision that is necessary to see. Mm-hmm. And so you have the spiritual aspect, you know, Moses says, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. He goes on to say, you can't, but, uh, and that's the whole point of the new covenant. But uh, he says, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. That's, that's the spiritual emphasis. But there's also this idea that, I mean, they are marking the male organ of, re, uh, uh, not regeneration, of generation. Uh-huh. Um, and and this is for the bringing out of the messianic seed who is going to come and be the one who was circumcised, you know, on the cross. Um, so you have the spiritual emphasis in the old, you have the messianic, but you do have the 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 physical side too. Now it's interesting to compare and contrast two different verses here. Uh, one is Romans two twenty eight and twenty nine. Paul writes, for he is not a Jew who, who is one outwardly, neither is, uh, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter. Mm-hmm. So, but what does Genesis 17, 13 say? God specifically says that this covenant is is fleshly. He says, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh, in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So I think Paul there is showing the difference between physical circumcision alone and what was always required for the covenant people to receive salvation, which is circumcision of the heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful. I wish people would listen to this, even if they're just curious about the question, what's up with circumcision? What was it all about? I think that was a very good uh, summary of of the symbolism. Well, I, I hope so. It's, you know, one of the things that I had to struggle through was, okay, just, okay, so there's some proximity here between baptism and circumcision in Colossians 2, 11 through 12, right? And sometimes uh, this is not true of all paedo-baptist exegesis, but sometimes it is true that when Colossians 2, 11 through 12 are mentioned, it's like, hey, the two terms, they show up together, therefore replacement, you know, big equal sign between the the two covenantal signs. Um, can, can I read that real quick? Or, yeah, absolutely. It, it would now be a good time to do that? Um, yeah, I think so. So we're asking the question um, – does baptism replace circumcision? And right here, you, you are acknowledging that there's some connection, right? Um, mm-hmm. And Colossians, There's an analogy. There's an analogy. Colossians 2, 11 through 12 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you mm-hmm. were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so mm-hmm. it is true the term circumcision and baptism are mentioned in close proximity to one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is obviously some sort of connection, some sort of an, an analogy. But what you're saying is that they are not to be uh, equated so strongly so as to say that the one just replaces the other. Right. And I, I was reading um, uh, Leslie Newbegin in his lectures on the ecclesiology and the household of faith. And uh, I got these two big, long quotes. I mean, is there any way that we can put these up maybe in the podcast that I don't have to read both of them? (laughs) Uh, There's one that I think hits the nail on the head in terms of this passage in Colossians 2. He says, if the point of the passage 
were the replacement of one right by another. Okay, so what he's saying is if the point of the passage were the replacement of circumcision by baptism, he says it is inconceivable that the phrase a circumcision not made with hands should have been used. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new covenant also has its rights of that. We shall speak in a minute, but the true contrast being drawn here as elsewhere is not of circumcision with baptism, but of circumcision in the flesh made by hands with circumcision of the heart, the work of the Holy spirit. Now I, I have no clue if Leslie Newbegin is a pedo Baptist or a credo Baptist. I believe he was Episcopal, but I'm not sure. And, uh, he, he disagrees with the idea that, uh, there's just a simple correspondence between baptism mm-hmm. and circumcision because so much of the time Paul places the uh, the weight of circumcision, the weight that's placed on circumcision is that it's the first, in the first place, almost to Paul, it's a sign of works righteousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why Peter can say in, in Acts 15, this was, a, this was a burden neither we nor our fathers could bear. And are we going to place this on the Gentiles? Now, wait a minute. The circumcision is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It, it represents the exact same things as baptism does. Well, wait, but then how can Peter say that circumcision is a yoke, which neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Or how can Paul say, if you take on circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you? Um, you know, are they really signs representing the same things. So you would agree that they have this in common. Both are signs of the covenants which they mm-hmm. represent. Mm-hmm. Right. But, yeah. I. But they are different in, in many respects. Um, yeah. So in, in Jeffrey Johnson's book, mm-hmm. um, The Fatal Flaw of Infant Baptism, he says that there is certainly an analogy being made in Colossians 2, 11 through 12 with circumcision and baptism. But he said an analogy is a comparison of two unlike things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, um, that's important to stress um, because, you know, uh, one, one could say, in terms of the type, well, the Old Testament sacrifices are the same as the sacrifice of Christ. Well, no, they're not, because the type is not the anti-type. Uh, to quote Sam Renahan, a, a foot in a, a footprint in the sand is not the same thing as a foot. When when fulfillment comes, there are differences that automatically take place because of the last will and testament of Jesus Christ that's been made, and so. I, th- I think um, there is analogy between them. I think that they are, in 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 a way, initiatory signs into the church. Well, obviously, initi- initiatory signs into the church, um, or I should say, baptism is an initiation into the church, and circumcision was an initiation into the covenant people of old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, there, while there is some analogy between the two, I we have to be careful not to. Um, uh, as Paul K. Jewett says, <laughs> uh, Judaize the, the New Testament and Christianize the Old in right. the way of replacing baptism with circumcision. I mean, um, yeah, I think that's dangerous. What are some of the ways that baptism differs from <clears throat> circumcision? Um, 
what, what would you point to to really emphasize the discontinuity between the two mm. things? Um, yeah. Well, one of those would be it was a burden that neither the Jews that neither the Jews in Peter's time nor their fathers were able to bear. If you were to accept it, uh, uh, you would be forsaking the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but you know Benjamin Keach in his um, response to I can't remember who he's responding to, but it's it's in his book The Rector Rectified. Mm-hmm. And uh, he locates quite a few differences. I'm just going to mention a few here. Um, this is the type antitype thing. Circumcision was a shadow of Christ to come. Baptism is a sign that he has already come, was dead and buried. Right. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant made with Abraham and his natural seed. Baptism is a sign of the peculiar spiritual privileges made to saints as such and no others. Now that's coming obviously from the presupposition of a Baptist. Um, and he says circumcision was a domestic action. Now that's interesting, mm-hmm. right? It was done in the household. Baptism is an ecclesiastic. It's be- it belongs to the gospel church. That obviously it has some, some variances then. Um, circumcision was the cutting of the foreskin, which drew blood. Baptism is done by dipping the whole body into the water without drawing any blood. So uh, circumcision makes a mark on the body, whereas baptism uh, really doesn't make any mark on the body. It's not something you can look at later that's physical on you and say, uh, you know, what, what, why, why am I like this? Um, uh, circumcision was to be done on the eighth day. Baptism is not limited to any precise day. Uh, circumcision bound those who came under that right to keep the whole law of Moses. Baptism signifies we are delivered from that yoke of bondage. Um, maybe I'll mention one more here. Uh, or I'll mention, um, yeah, circumcision was a partition wall betwixt Jew and Gentile. Uh, but baptism testifies that Jew and Gentile, male and female, barbarian, Scythian, slave, uh, uh, and free are all one in Christ Jesus. Therefore, he says, there are inverse disparities and different significations between circumcision and baptism. Mm-hmm. So the thing we're really trying to do here in a brief amount of time is to emphasize the discontinuity between uh, baptism and circumcision, right? Exactly. Of course, there is some continuity. There is some analogy between the two. We totally acknowledge that. But there is an awful lot of discontinuity that um, we need to pay attention to so that in the end we cannot say that the one just simply replaces the other or the one equals the other. Mm -hmm. Um, They are two different signs attached to two different covenants, yeah. Ultimately, they symbolize totally different things. Um, yeah, well, and, in this sense, they they, they, mm-hmm. co- they correspond in this way. It's true that circumcision had a spiritual component to it, and yes. that it pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah. And baptism also does those things. It, mm-hmm. it symbolizes something spiritual that has happened, and it points back to the Messiah. Mm-hmm. But but the fleshly, national, ethnic, uh, familial. Uh, component of it has has passed away yeah and and i think um i think circumcision pointed to the necessity of something right they were outwardly physically circumcised and moses said circumcise the foreskin of your hearts uh but then he said god's gonna have to do that and i think when we look at the new testament paul's saying we are we are the true circumcision who worship by the spirit of god um that the the new covenant in jeremiah 31 points to a regenerate um uh uh, co- uh, covenant community, although we want to 
make sure like we did last time and classify and clarify that so that we're not misunderstood by, by pedo Baptists. Um, um, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, baptism is actually never called a seal in the new Testament. It's actually, if you, if you look at the relevant texts, it's always the Holy spirit who is, who is, the one who seals us for right. the day of redemption, mm-hmm. the one who is is you know the our bone. He's the he's the the down payment of our inheritance. Right. I think that's a very significant point. Uh, we should probably move on, Mark. To um, we're okay. running out of time uh, to this yeah. question, and this has come up multiple times. So I think it's good that we address it directly. Is there an external connection to Christ in the covenant of grace? Does the new covenant allow for this? And, and um, we as Baptists would agree that under the Old Covenant, there was certainly an internal and external dimension so that someone mm-hmm. could be a part of the covenant but not of the heart, not regenerate, right? Not not mm-hmm. uh, not elect, uh, whereas others were a part of that same covenant but inwardly, and they, mm-hmm. they had the faith of Abraham. Uh, we acknowledge that, but when we come to uh, the New Covenant, uh, the Baptist perspective is that there is not an external component to it. Uh, and and that is the thing that the Pado Baptists are consistently appealing to this idea that it is possible for their children to be brought into the covenant from birth externally. Mm-hmm. Uh, can it be so? That's that's the question. Does the new covenant, the, the yes. New Testament, allow for this? Yeah, and and I I think we covered this a little bit when we talked about Romans eight. Uh, you know, whoever does not have the Spirit of God, <coughs> excuse me, does does not belong to Him. Um, and how uh, can one be a member of the new covenant without receiving any of its blessings? You know, it's, it's often uh, sometimes phrases are used in Pado Baptist circles like covenant children, covenant blessings, covenant, uh, you know, co- covenant family. Covenants, the word covenant is slapped onto a lot of things. But uh, one of the things that I came to when I when I came from a Pado Baptist perspective to a Credo Baptist perspective to do was to sort of ask the question: What exactly are the covenantal blessings of the new covenant? Uh, for for children, particularly from those of a perspective who do not believe in presumptive regeneration, um, and it was like well you know they belong they belong to the church they're put under the gospel ministry they have christian homes they're they're catechized they're taught the truths of scripture and i, I understand that but um, it seems to me that the the new covenantal blessings as outlined by jeremiah 31 is the gift of the holy spirit the forgiveness of sins uh, ephesians chapter 1 every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ jesus uh what, what of those blessings do they partake of? I mean, I think we, we, we mentioned last time, children of believers have a great privilege mm-hmm. of being placed under gospel ministry and of receiving teaching and of having uh, the example of Christian parents. Mm-hmm. But those are not new covenant blessings. And, um, and I think we have to continue to make that distinction. Is it possible to... Uh, to be a member of the new covenant in any sense without receiving the forgiveness of your sins. Um, it seems to me that when we read Isaiah 53 or we hear that Christ's about Christ's offspring, or we look at Isaiah, is it 9 or 11, where it talks about he is um, 
uh, it mentions Christ as even a father, which is sort of strange language, but talking about him as having having children. Um, who who are those? And uh, as we look through Isaiah, we have really good reason to believe that the seed are actually spiritual seed. And um, I, I, I don't know if you would like to add anything to this. Maybe you can speak to this more than, than I could from what I've done thus far. I don't know. Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I can. I think it's very common for Baptists to go continually to Jeremiah 31, 31, and to just recite it, you know, really quickly as if it proves everything, you know, right, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I think it is a very powerful passage that needs to be given careful mm-hmm. consideration, but I know that the Pado baptists have some responses to it. Can I read it? Sure, yes, please. Behold, I'll do the thing that I just kind of mocked, right? Behold, the days are coming, <laughs> declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. Regeneration. Yeah, and he says this is the covenant, right? right. Yeah, And I will be their God, and you've already quoted many New Testament passages that tell us what is required to be of God and a child of God and to belong to him. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is the Spirit. And they shall be my people, and no mm. longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. These are the blessings of the new covenant mm-hmm. um, that was promised through the prophet Jeremiah long before the coming of Christ. I've heard some Pado baptists kind of scoff at this, saying, well, you Baptists have an over-realized eschatology because, look, it says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. Mm. And they say, this is obviously speaking of a day, at least in part, uh, when there'll be no more teachers. And there are still teachers today, so this thing hasn't come to fulfillment uh, fully. And I remember yeah, how hearing, do you respond to that? Well, my response to that would be the content of the teaching is also mentioned. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. Right. So that kind of teaching does not take place in the New Covenant community in the way that it did in the Old Covenant community. Mm-hmm. Um, for someone to truly be a member of the New Covenant, they do not be, need to be exhorted to know the Lord. They already uh, do. They know the Lord, whereas under the Old Covenant – it was very common. In fact, read the prophets. They spent most of their time doing this very thing to where they're talking mm. to fellow covenant <laughs> members who are under the, 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 the Mosaic covenant, the, uh, economy uh, saying, know the Lord, you're circumcised yeah, according to the flesh, but not according <laughs> to the spirit. So I think you just have to read the rest of the verse to see what is being meant here. It's not saying right. that there'll no longer be any teachers, period. So the but context defines that. The context, I think. Uh, defines it um. well and 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 one would one would uh say too um uh ephesians 4 okay so christ has instituted the new covenant in his blood died on the cross rose from the dead ascended into heaven seated at the right hand completed the work that the father gave him to do interceding at the right hand of god and from the right hand of god sends forth these blessings to the church, Ephesians 4, of, you know, apostles, teachers, evangelists, um, uh, for the building up of the saints, Mm -hmm. for, uh, you know, as it says there in Ephesians 4, for the work of ministry, and then it goes on. Um, uh, 
it's really interesting how you could take those two passages in tandem and say the context determines what that teaching is. Uh, if somebody has made a credible profession of faith, I I have to have a judgment of charity on that and not exhort them to, you know, truly believe in the Lord. I mean, like you said, Jeremiah is chock full of references to Jeremiah saying, you know, let the one who boasts boast in this that he knows me. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's really good. Yeah, what I just said could be twisted. I, I, I understand that. I, I need to qualify it a little bit more. Of course, as a pastor, I do stand up on a Sunday and exhort people to know the, know the Lord or to continue mm. in Christ. Of course, I do that. But I, I think the issue here is that those who are truly in the new covenant will know the Lord and thus do yes. not need to be exhorted. Whereas in principle, in, yeah. In, yeah, in principle. Whereas in the old covenant, that wasn't so. You could legitimately be a member of the covenant and yet not know the Lord because of mm-hmm. the fleshly um, uh, um, aspect of, of the covenant. Yeah. yeah, and I think you see that when Moses says, circumcise your hearts, presuming that this whole nation is not circumcised in heart and yet are God's own people. Now, it was that okay that they weren't circumcised in heart? Well, no. I mean, uh, I remember this was a point made by one of my professors was, you know, those who were just circumcised in heart, that was never legitimate to only be that. But whether it was legitimate or not, you could still be considered God's people from that physical ethnic standpoint without having a heart circumcision. Mm. So I think that's an interesting point to make too. Right. Okay. Um, household baptisms in Acts, uh, the, the Pado yeah. baptists make much of those and really want to emphasize that uh, God uh, works through families. Um, do we agree with that? I, I think we've already touched upon this actually in yeah. the previous episode. We do agree with that. Yep. God um, does work through families. Amen. For a child to be in a home where there is one parent or two parents who believe is a great blessing. They are holy, set apart, sanctified in some sense, you know, um, uh, by the believing uh, parent. Um, we, we agree with that. And we do see that God consistently works through families. It is not uncommon for the children of believers to grow up into themselves, into they themselves believe. Mm-hmm. Not always, but God seems to use the family as a as a kind of means. Um, yes, yeah, I, I think the household baptism passages are they're going to be read through the lens of more fundamental presuppositions or considerations and. That's why, personally, I don't find them very helpful in answering the question of the validity of infant baptism at all. But I, uh, this is something that Baptists have mentioned. I agree with this. Using an argument from silence um, in terms of household principle for the validity of you know of saying yeah the, you know infant baptism is is a good thing that we should do. Using an argument from silence for for. Uh, rather than a positive precept of the New Testament, is dangerous in terms of the regulative principle of worship, mm-hmm. and um, and there's and I think I said this last time. There's this idea that well, when you put all of these instances of baptism in the New Testament together, where people are actually getting baptized, not where baptism is being talked about, but where where people are you know theologically, but where where baptism is, is being applied to people, is you sort of put together all the examples. You have uh, you have tons of household baptisms and not as many individualistic baptisms. Uh, 
I think when you look at that in light of the day of Pentecost, you see 3,000 people getting baptized in one you know, swoop. Uh, and from the passage, explicitly, it is those who um, – it is those who have believed and repented of their sins who receive the sign of circumcision. Very clear from Acts chapter 2. Uh, not circumcision. Have <laughs> received the sign of baptism is very clear from uh, Acts chapter 2. It is those who have had faith uh, and repented. And you sort of put 3,000 uh, individual, individual baptisms next to the household baptisms. I mean, maybe you say there's 10 people in, in a house. I mean, even if you say that there's 10 people in household baptisms, you know, sometimes when we read the, the New Testament, we think, oh, this all happened in a period of, you know, a year, two years in Acts. This stuff was happening over a long period of time, and it was a very amazing thing about the New Testament period that whole households were believing, and it was a testament to God's gracious election and, and provision mm-hmm. that whole families did come to faith in God. And I would say that there are times today when whole families do espouse faith in in God. Um, but to say that when we put all the examples together that household baptisms were actually more prevalent is is really not fair. Yeah. It's not a fair argument. I agree. That was kind of bumbly, but... <laughs> no, no. I, well, what I hear you doing is addressing... Um an argument that you've heard with some regularity. I have really, really not heard that argument much, but I mm. come from a different background than do you. Yeah. You um, can listen to Legan Duncan. Uh, uh, iTunes university has a class of his on uh, covenant theology. And he talks about, he actually talks about circumcision and baptism and he talks about uh, the household baptisms there and says, says basically what I've said. Yeah. And uh, I just don't find that to be very, once you, once you think about it, it's like, eh, I don't really, I don't really buy that. Well, what do you think, man? Anything else to, to address uh, before we conclude? I'm looking at the clock here, brother. We have to start to wrap it up. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, is there anything um, else you'd like to touch upon in terms of critiquing the Pado position? Yeah, I would just like to encourage any Pado Baptists who are listening to this. Think about positive times when baptism is being talked about theologically in terms of Paul's pneumatology, that is his doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and thinking about how this is a big word, how Paul's eschatology, how his, his, his eschatology, doctrine of the last things, really infuses his entire theological outlook, so much so that really that, that new age that Christ has ushered in through the new covenant is really coming into contact with and, and breaking into our present time through the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and when, when, when you read the times in the New Testament where baptism is being talked about, you see this connection between the Spirit and between baptism. I mean, even Gerhardus Voss, commenting on Titus 3.5 in Pauline Eschatology, says, Baptism to our consciousness is something pertaining to the present Christian state. Nevertheless, the very fact of baptism being joined to the rebirth from Titus, uh, Titus 3.5 proves, Voss says, that it must have in its conception a definite bearing upon the future life. Hmm. Um, you know, Romans 6, 3, do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? You know, here's the Historia Salutis and the Ordo Salutis, the history of salvation in Christ and the order of salvation application to us coming together. Hmm. Uh, Colossians two eleven through 12 is basically the same thing. 
Um, we've talked about Galatians 25 through 29. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. I mean, isn't it, isn't it to drain this, the significance of the sacrament to say, you know, really it's just an initiation into the church. This is what God is doing for our kids, but but it has nothing to do with 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 the Holy Spirit's work in this person's life. When 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 you disjunct those two things, don't you do damage to the sacrament of baptism to say you know when Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. All were made to drink of one spirit. And I I really think that you have to argue and vie for two different baptisms if you don't hold to presumptive regeneration. Hmm. Uh, you, you you have to say – you have to use phrases such as inclusion of children, initiation into the church, God's covenant children. But in all of those things, you know, where is the pneumatic? Where is the Holy Spirit emphasis? Where is the eschatological emphasis that is coming to play in all portions of Paul's theology? Uh by keeping the Holy Spirit emphasis on the background, Pedro Baptist, I think, relinquished one of the most beautiful aspects of baptism for children. If I can't, um, well, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of a quote by Charles Hodge here. Maybe we can end with this. Mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of quotes by infant Baptists who say some just 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 some downright strange things, things that I was uh, confused about. But um, here, here is this quote by Charles Hodge from his Systematic Theology. He says, uh, talking about baptism, the difficulty on this subject is that baptism from its very nature involves a profession of faith. He's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it is the way in which, by the ordinance of Christ, he is to be confessed before men. Oh, <gasps> what? Yeah, baptism amen. is a confession of our faith? <laughs> yes. But infants, he says, are incapable of making such confession. Therefore, they are not the proper subjects of baptism. Uh, you, you just think, like, what? This is Charles Hodge. And then he says, or to state the matter in another form, the sacraments belong to the members of the church, but the church is a company of believers. Infants cannot exercise faith. Therefore, they are not members of the church and consequently ought not to be baptized. And, and then he says, this is how he ends the quote, in order to justify the baptism of infants, we must attain and authenticate such an idea of church as that it shall include the children of believing parents. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe I'll just read a few more. Um, I found these quotes to be rather appalling, and I don't know if Pato Baptists will in the same way now. But uh, Charles Hodge also says this, Do let little ones have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, even if they afterwards choose to erase them. So apparently we're going to enroll our children in the Lamb's Book of Life through baptism. And he says, Being thus enrolled may be the means of their salvation. Uh, Wow. I mean, I don't even know... Mm. What uh, what to say about that, or or what, like what is Hodge thinking? I mean, he is so apart from his reformed theology when he says that. And frankly, I think I think most Baptists would probably agree. Um, just to to close up, then Bavink says some strange things. He he says, 
if the children of believers are to be regarded as Scripture teaches us to regard them, then according to the divine institution of baptism, they have a legitimate claim to the sacrament in the same measure as, and even in a greater measure than, adults who make profession of faith. So he says, look, our kids, our covenant children have an even greater measure than adults who make profession of faith. Hmm. Um he goes on to say the likelihood that the baptized are true believers is even greater in the case of children than in adults. And I don't know where he comes up with that. I don't know what his biblical rationale for that is. Um, but then it's weird because then he goes on to, to, to say, like baptism, the Lord's Supper was instituted only for believers. So there's just these dissonances that clang together. Yeah. It's like, you know, Paul Jewett had this amazing statement in his book that, you know, you you take the argumentation of paedo-baptists and it's like trying to put just a, just a too small of lid on a cup. Hmm. And you're trying to pound it on, you're trying to get it on, it just won't fit. And, and in that same way, that's what happened to me. I'm reading these guys uh, and, and I'm thinking this just, this is clanging. This is dissonant. This is, this is like a too small of a lid that's not fitting on the cup. Right. Right. Um, well, I think this is yeah. all great, Mark. Um, you know, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of the listener, I would imagine that this episode probably felt a little disjointed, you know? Um, mm. but I don't think, we could really help that so much because here what we're doing, what we have done is we've presented the pedo position and then we've begun to just kind of point out this and that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. aspect of it that uh, just doesn't quite work. Um, and, and so I think uh, we, we can't but help for there to be a bit of a disjointed nature to this uh, this podcast. Mm. But I, I hope that as uh, people are listening to this, it's just getting them to think, huh, yeah, the system, though at first seems to be you know, very thorough and, and it, as if, you know, it, it all coheres. Um, really, when you begin to look at it more closely, it kind of begins to unravel, yeah. um, I think. And, uh, <coughs> and what I'm trying to do also here is to say, uh, please come back and listen to uh, the next episode where we give a yes. positive presentation of the Credo Baptist position, uh, because I think that should bring everything together and, and make yeah. things most clear. It's it's hard to tie all of these lines together in a cohesive way that tries to answer the objections and also tries to do faithfulness to all of the, the massive texts of scripture that you have to cover when you mm-hmm. do this issue. And I think that's – and so you know, my, the, my notes here are pretty disjuncted themselves. So, uh, so I hope that if you – know, I, I hope what you just said it comes true, that people will come back next week and, and we'll, we'll try to give a really clear – uh, and um, uh, cohesive statement of the fact that you can be a credo Baptist and be reformed and mm-hmm. be covenant and be a covenant uh, theology person. Yeah, Amen. I think that's great, brother. And please understand, I'm not complaining about anything here. I think uh, this was outstanding oh, yeah. material. I just think it's the nature of the beast. Um, I think ter- so. In terms of how we have approached this, so. Wonderful. The many-headed Hydra. Sure, brother. <laughs> um, I've, I've really enjoyed this talk, and I hope uh, you, the listener, have enjoyed it as well. Have gleaned something from it. Of course, our, our goal is to um, edify the church and, and to um, you know spark good thought and, and dialogue. I hope that has happened, and the ultimate uh, goal is that you would 
um, believe what you believe more strongly and, and have greater love for Christ and serve him in mm. this world. And so we pray that that would happen uh, and that Christ's kingdom would be furthered uh, on until the consummation. Uh, so please come back and listen again. Uh, we plan to put out more episodes, and we hope that you're a regular listener, um, and we thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll hopefully uh, hear from you in the future if you have any feedback, but, but thanks again for joining us. And until next time, uh, walk worthy. God bless. Mm-hmm.